I hope you're um, getting something out on this of this series on prayer. It's um, fairly basic in many ways, and yet it's also prayer remains challenging for each one of us. It's something none of us do enough, and all of us can benefit from doing more. But we're going to take a slightly different tack today. It is prayer, but it's uh, a parable Jesus told in Luke chapter 18. And really, this is about our attitude in coming to prayer. Luke chapter 18 and verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying with this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I pay tithes of all I get. But the tax collector was standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, This man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And this parable follows directly on from one we looked at a couple of weeks ago regarding the woman who sought justice from the unrighteous judge. And at the start of that parable, in verse 1, Luke gave us a clue concerning its meaning. He said, now he was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart. You remember we talked about persistence in prayer and keep coming back and keep pressing on, even though we don't seem to be seeing the answers to what we're praying for, press on. And Luke picks that out and Jesus told that parable to encourage us to keep going. Well, this one he also gives us a clue with. He told this parable to some people, verse 9, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Once more at the start of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, he gives us a clue to to its meaning. And essentially he tells us that the parable is a warning against those who trust in their own righteousness, looking down on the less righteous than themselves. So how does Luke get this message across? Well, he does it by contrasting the prayers of these two men. And a common notion in Luke, if you read through the Gospel of Luke, Luke often contrasts two people and identifies for us the person who seems to be less worthy is the one most fit for the kingdom of God. And that's exactly what he does here. We seem to have an automatic judgment system that says the person worthy is the most fit. Well, Luke, well, Jesus, through Luke, turns it all on its head and says the person who appears less worthy is actually the one that's got their attitude right. So let's consider them in turn for a few moments before bringing out the contrast between them. And particularly as we encounter them in the courts of the temple in Jerusalem, because that's where this is set, in the temple itself, where the two men have come to pray. So first the Pharisee. Well, in the opinion of the listeners, the Pharisee would have been the supreme example of righteousness. He's the positive role model in this parable. 
He's the one, as far as the listeners were concerned, who, who exemplifies righteousness. He's got it all together. He's there. How does Paul describe himself in Philippians 3.6 in his days as a Pharisee? He says, as to the righteousness which is by the law, found blameless. And that was how people would have perceived this Pharisee. Blameless as regards to the law. Righteous in all his ways. Living it out just as he appeared, uh, would seem to, uh, that, he sh- that he should do. And it was universally understood that the Pharisees were observers of the law of Moses. And that their righteousness in accordance with the law was beyond question. Praying, fasting, giving tithes, he mentions all these things. All admirable practices. And guess what? They still are. And we're clearly, uh, these things were clearly being undertaken by this Pharisee. However, this Pharisee goes beyond the norm. It was expected that you would fast once a week. Well, this Pharisee fasts twice a week. It was expected that you would give your tithe of, of, you know, this and that, but you didn't necessarily have to tithe this. And Jesus picks up the Pharisees that you, saying that they, they tithe mint and dill and cumin, but they don't t- uh, give attention to the more weighty matters of the law. So he was precise in giving his tithe. He worked it out to the nth degree, 10% on the nose every month. Blameless in every way. He's a very zealous Pharisee. But people such as he also set the standard by which they expected all others to live. This is how Jesus describes such people in Matthew 23, verse 47. Or 427. He says, They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. They do all their deeds to be noticed by men, for they broaden their phylacteries, that's prayer boxes they wore on their head, and lengthen their tassels, which is their prayer shawl, of their garments. And they love the place of honor at banquets and the chief seats in the synagogues and respectful greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by men. They had all the externals right and they gloried in all of this external righteousness and they loved people looking at them and were seeing how wonderful they were and how obedient they were to the law. But if you go on in that other chapter in Matthew 23, that's just the start of Jesus' criticism of them. What follows in the remainder of the chapter is an absolute tirade against their empty religiosity. Yeah, woe to scribes and Pharisees. He goes on time and time again. So what was Jesus' issue with them? What was Jesus' issue with these righteous men who were doing all, fulfilling the law? Why did he have a problem with them? But they did. They did it perfectly. I think you're on the right lines there, Marina. The issue with the Pharisee was this. He knew how good he was at keeping the law and had put all his confidence before God in his own ability to be righteous. He thought that he could earn God's favour through his own righteousness, and he'd not grasped the fact that all that we have from God flows out of his mercy and his grace. You see, our righteous living is a response to mercy and grace and not the means to merit it. 
There's nothing you can do to deserve God's grace. There's nothing you can do to earn his mercy. There is nothing you can do to grasp hold of any blessing from God. There is no way, act you can do, there is no way of living that can earn the grace of God. It's a free gift through Jesus Christ and through his sacrifice. And this Pharisee had not grasped the fact that he couldn't earn by being externally good. He couldn't merit it. He could only open his hands and receive it as a free gift. And there's no thankfulness to God in his prayers. It's all about what he's done in obedience to the law. It's also full of condemnation for others who aren't as good as he is. You see, God is not looking for obedience to a set of rules and regulations from us. He's not looking for adherence to the law. Rather, he wants us to live righteously because we want to please the one who has loved us. And lavished his grace and mercy upon us. The righteousness that comes from obedience to rules and regulations leads to a legalistic and judgmental spirit towards towards all of those who aren't as righteous as us. Or even those who don't see the things the same way as we see them. We have no right to be judgmental. We have no right to stand on our own righteousness. All we have is the right to stand with open hands, looking to God for his mercy and his grace. About a year ago, we came across a situation, became aware of a situation in the Brethren Church. If you know anything about the Brethren, they are, to say the least, legalistic. They expect women to wear hats and dresses when they come to church, wear no makeup. And they definitely may not speak in church. So you watch out, women. We might be going to that. (laughs) No, no chance. No chance. And all of these rules and many others have come come out of a narrow interpretation of Scripture and have led in many places to a bondage which maintains a burden of guilt upon the adherence instead of the freedom which comes from knowing Jesus. In this particular Brethren Church, the man who had for many years been the lead elder, about 20 years ago he had an affair, and it had been kept quiet, but he confessed it to his wife and his family. And although this was not prolonged, he could never get past the point of forgiving himself or receiving God's forgiveness, because he believed he had to earn God's favour. About a year ago, in desperation, he took his own life, which of course had a dramatic impact on the church and upon his family. You see, legalism leads to bondage and self-righteousness, and it's a burden of guilt that should not be given for the people of God to carry. It's freedom that Christ has set us free for, not guilt, not burden. Righteousness as a response to his love not to earn his love. And in the church, we do have a responsibility to help people to understand how to live as God wants them to live. But this should not lay a burden of guilt upon them. Rather, it should set them free to choose 
to do what Christ wants in their lives. See, living a righteous life is not always easy, is it? Anyone find it easy? You put your hand up, then you can come and tell me how to do it. It's a choice daily to choose to live Christ's way instead of my way. To choose to do his will and not my will. It's not easy. But why do we do it? Because we want to please the one who has lavished his love and mercy upon us. We don't sit there looking up the rules. Oh, I've got to do this. Oh, I've got to do that. Because that won't get us anywhere. It's about loving God and choosing to live his way day by day. It's not a call to compromise in terms of our behavior and lifestyle. If we truly love God, he should be number one in our lives. He should take first place and our desire should be to please him in everything. This is not an excuse for half-heartedness towards God his church, or in the way we live out our faith. Quite the opposite. However, all of that needs to flow out of the gratitude we feel in our hearts towards the God who has saved us, cleansed us, forgiven us, healed us, set us free from the power of the enemy, and who has given us an eternal hope. The way you choose to live your life will demonstrate who you actually worship. I'll say that again. The way you choose to live your life will demonstrate who you actually worship. Because if you worship God, he's number one. If you're worshipping self, you will be number one. If you're worshipping money, that will be number one. If you're worshipping career, that will be number one. And actually, the way you live demonstrates much more about your attitude towards God than anything you say or anything you do standing up here on a Sunday morning. Our lives demonstrate what we actually worship. So think about, what are you worshipping right now? What's got number one place in your life? What's got number one place in my life? Because that is what we're worshipping. And if it's not God, then we better do some confessing and coming back. And receiving again of his grace and mercy that we might live as he wants us to live. The Pharisee worshipped the law and not God. That was his problem. And the Pharisee stood before God and told God how righteous he was. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay all the tithes of all I get. And Jesus is not just railing against Pharisees here, but against all who exalt their own righteousness before God and men. And when we come to God, it's not to tell him how good we are and how much we deserve his favour, but rather to take the example of the tax collector to whom we now turn. So, what about the tax collector? In the parable, the tax collector is the antitype of the Pharisee. He does everything in prayer in contrast with the Pharisee. And he's commended by Jesus for so doing. What was wrong with being a tax collector anyway? Surely we all love the people from the Inland Revenue. Don't we? Well, this man was more than just a tax inspector. 
the very mention of his name in this passage. While Jesus was telling this parable, the crowd would have been going, Boo! <laughs> Why? Well, firstly, because nobody likes paying taxes. Mm. Anyone like paying taxes? Anyone look forward to that moment when you're going to send your tax return in at the end of January? And if you haven't done it, you've missed it. (laughs) Nobody likes paying taxes. They're a necessary evil, but an evil nonetheless. (laughs) And I could at this point wax lyrical about the evils and injustices of taxation through the centuries, but I shall resist. Secondly, he was collecting taxes for the Romans. And that meant he was... Boo, yeah. (laughs) What have the Romans ever done for us? Other than roads and baths. (laughs) He was collecting taxes for the Romans. That meant he was also a collaborator. And any self-respecting Jew despised the Romans and would have as little to do with them as possible. They were waiting for someone to rise up amongst them who would throw off the shackles of Roman rule and establish the kingdom under a Davidic descendant, a descendant of David. And they would despise anyone who actually worked for the Romans, particularly someone who took tribute from them, keeping the Romans in power. You see, for the people, the Pharisee was helping to prepare the people for the kingdom to come. In the minds of the, 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 the spectators. The tax collector was working against the coming of the kingdom. He was reinforcing that which was stopping the kingdom coming. Who could be worse than him? Thirdly, he was likely, more than likely corrupt. A swindler, as the Pharisee says. Who took money for the Romans, but took a cut himself. And yes, he did everything possible to be despised by the general populace. And we see this, interestingly enough, in the story of Zacchaeus that follows in the following chapter, where it seems that Jesus has painted the picture of the tax collector and then actually redeems the tax collector. Wonderful um, follow-on story that follows in the next chapter. So when this tax collector comes into the temple, he doesn't just stand there like the Pharisee, proud, chest out, telling God how good he's been. We see him standing far off. He doesn't feel even worthy to come near the front. He's at the back of the church. And he doesn't feel worthy to lift his head to heaven as they used to pray. He's got his head down and he's beating his breast. He is in shame, the word is used in the the passage. And admitting that he's a sinner... And throwing himself on God's mercy. And I was reminded while preparing of the Beverly Preacher Man, who thankfully for the moment has disappeared, but who stands there in judgment of the population, telling them how sinful they are. Does he sound more like the Pharisee or the text collector? I had to ask that question. Most people don't need to be told they're sinners or that the world is in a mess. The truths are self-evident. Rather, they need to be told that there is a merciful and gracious God in heaven who's done everything necessary to restore them into relationship with himself. If only they will throw themselves on his mercy. So let's compare these men. 
convinced of his righteousness, dependent on his own acts of piety. One asks for and receives nothing from God. The other comes to God in humility and receives that for which he asks, compassion and restoration. And in comparing these two men in verse 14, Luke records that Jesus uses a very unusual and strong word in the context. He says of the unrighteous tax collector, he went to his home justified. What does that mean? Is Luke alluding to a fully worked out Pauline theology of justification through faith alone? Those in the Bible school can come and tell, tell us all that that means. Well, possibly. But to understand what is meant here, we need to strip the word back to its root meaning. It occurs only twice in the Gospels. Here and in Matthew twelve thirty-seven, when it's used to suggest that our words will justify us or condemn us. And it's the Greek word, decay, o, o. Slightly difficult to pronounce. But it literally means to declare righteous or to acquit. To declare righteous or to acquit. And what Jesus is saying here is that the tax collector is acquitted before God and receives forgiveness because he is not self-righteous but humble. In contrast, the Pharisee remains in his guilt whether he acknowledges it or not because he is self-righteous and judgmental. And that's the choice. Humility brings grace. Self-righteousness brings judgment. And the message in all of this is that when we come to pray to God, when we come before him, our heart needs to be humble. We cannot come and say, look how good I've been. I deserve my prayers to be answered. Why aren't you listening to me, God? But we can come and say, I know I'm not perfect, but I thank you for your grace and mercy. And God is looking for a heart response for us, from us, and not for external righteousness. So what can we take from this passage? Firstly, remember that we can come before God because of his grace and mercy that have been lavished on us in Christ. We can come before him. We can come frequently. We have access. We have the ability to come before the throne day by day. It's been opened up. The curtain is torn in two. We can go right into the throne room of God. You have access. Remember it. Use it. Rejoice in it. Secondly, know that your sins are forgiven in Christ Jesus. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Thirdly, you don't have to earn God's grace and mercy. They are gifts, free gifts to the humble heart through his blood. Fourthly, righteousness is a response to grace, not a means to earn it. Live righteously, but live it right out of response to the love you've received. Fifthly, it doesn't matter how good you are. Don't despise those who are not as good as you, but rather extend the grace of God to them. Don't despise the sinner, but show grace and mercy. And then sixthly, be thankful 
and pray. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have lavished your mercy upon us and that your grace is there. And that we can only stand this morning, Lord God, not with a righteousness of our own, but with a righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, which is his given as a gift. And so, Father, we just want to thank you for the access that you've made available to us. And I pray, Lord God, that your blessing may rest upon each one of us during this week. And that, Lord God, we might come frequently to your throne and might stand in thankfulness of the grace we've received. And, Lord God, receive of your mercy day by day. Thank you for all that you are to us. Amen.